The Changelog is one of the most popular software engineering podcasts in existence. Open source software moves fast, and The Changelog helps software engineers keep up with that rapid pace by publishing consistent podcasts and newsletters. When I started Software Engineering Daily, The Changelog was one of the podcasts that I looked to for inspiration on how to succeed as a software engineering uh, editorialist or podcaster. Adam Stokowiak and Jared Santo are the hosts of The Changelog, and they join me today to discuss how open source has changed since they started the podcast in 2009 and how it will change in the near future. Before we get started, I want to take a quick moment to thank the people that have been tweeting and posting and telling their friends about Software Engineering Daily because the community is growing and it's really meaningful to me that people are taking the time to help us out with that growth. I also want to let you know about our Slack channel and our newsletter, both of which you can sign up for at softwareengineeringdaily.com. So thanks for getting involved with the community. It really means a lot to me. Jared Santo and Adam Stokowiak are the hosts of The Changelog, a podcast about open source software and the people who make it. Jared and Adam, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yes, sir. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hey. So let's start by talking about open source itself. How has open source software changed since you started The Changelog in 2009? Yeah, 2009. Okay. I don't know, man. It's definitely gotten faster. We started out saying open source moves fast, keep up. And I feel like that that's been a tried and true statement that it's only gotten faster and that uh, it's obviously gotten more social thanks to GitHub and people following that methodology of social coding. I think that it's obviously gotten a lot more interesting, a lot more diverse. And I think it's because software's gotten more diverse, not so much open source, but you know, people are, uh, man, I hope this doesn't come back to bite me, but I feel like it's the seventies a little bit, Jared. You know, where it's it's sort of hippie-ish in a way, in a good way. And it's sort of the hippie revolution coming back because open source kind of reminds me of that uh, peace, love, and happiness kind of thing, you know, where everybody is all about keeping the peace and all about inclusion and diversity and equality and things like that, which are all great things. But I feel like it's this this new thing that's come back from the era of the 70s, mm. which is kind of interesting to me. What do you think, Jared? Yeah, I would add that, you know, since 2009, I think, Everything has gotten centralized around GitHub so much so that even large corporations are embracing open source, notably Microsoft, Apple, Facebook. I think Google always kind of did from their roots. But, you know, we've seen bigger players come in and, and mix it up and, and have huge impacts and then also have fallout. So corporate interests, are, I think, are even more so aligned with open source than they've ever been. I think that's changing. Do you guys think that like the increasing globalization of software development is going to change open source more? Because like I just figure, I mean, obviously we have you know increase in diversity on a domestic scale, like you know more women and minorities, for example, are becoming software engineers. But also, you just think about like if all these people from say Africa and China they start to come into the open source community and sort of by Metcalf's law, you know, the, the network is the square of the nodes in the network. As we get more people from international places starting to contribute to open source, we, we might start to have this, you know, even even bigger 
increase in scope and diversity of the types of open source software we see. Yeah. And maintenance burden. <laughs> and maintenance burden. Absolutely. Yeah. Maintenance. And I think it, it makes our jobs as people who track open source and cover open source and talk about software engineering and, and the ecosystem, it makes our job, I think, more important because as you have more, you know, more noise, it's harder to find the signals. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking for that library that, you know, parses JSON in your particular language <laughs> and there's now 600 of them with different implementations or various levels of support and communities. Yeah. Finding the one that's right for you is becomes more difficult, but. Okay. So what leads to an open source project, either succeeding or failing? You want that one, Adam? (laughs) I think what leads to open source leading or, you know, succeeding or failing, it starts with the community. I mean, it obviously it's around the software, but it it depends on the community propping it up because we see this in several different camps where communities are beginning to fall apart or they're becoming, you know, just less communicative that it's really around the community. And then obviously the software's got to have a true need and meet a true need and right. solve a true problem. But I think it really re- resolves around people. I think, you know, one of the most interesting, I think, that we've done around the change login, obviously, as Jared has said, tracking open source is less just around the software. Like it began there. The original idea was... Obviously, as a change log, we thought, let's create a podcast around talking around the changes from version to version of software. And that obviously has gotten to a much bigger idea. But, you know, it started out with let's track the software. And I think what's really interesting and what really defines success for an open source project is the people behind it. Because without the people, you don't have the software. Yeah. And what's so interesting is that obviously the community is so important as a point of leverage, but perhaps... Like, I think the most successful open source projects, they often have a charismatic leader at the center mm-hmm. of them. You know, like with Linux, you have Linus Torvalds and Rails, you have David Heinemeier Hansen. Is that a trend or are there, do you see open source projects that do not have any mm-hmm. centralized charismatic leader? That's a tough one. I would say strong leadership is, you know, a necessary part of any thriving community. Yeah, mm. charismatic leader. I think that's a little bit of a slight distinction um, away <laughs> from you know strong leadership. Somebody who's definitely an influencer. I think that's the trend right. you're, you're really looking forward towards is uh, is they have to be able to influence people, not so much just charismatic. Mm. Very true. They have to okay. They have to influence people, but maybe they don't necessarily need to win friends. In the case of Linus yeah. Torvalds, yeah, we're not right. talking about the book here, right. but I mean. <laughs> You know, it's it is about. I wasn't going to name right? names there, Jeff, but you did. You named names. If no one could influence anybody, you know, then you're not going to get any followers. So I think it takes a level of following somebody down a particular path, whether it's an ideology or a, a paradigm or a language or a new direction. You know, I think it takes somebody who's influential and obviously somebody who's intelligent too. But I don't think charismatic. Yeah. I think charismatic leads into it only in in so much as drama. And just things like that get people excited because everybody loves drama. Everybody kind (laughs) of like gravitates towards it. Maybe not the day-to-day community we interact with, but the large majorities of people really, uh, that's why there's reality TV, right? You don't watch that. You don't watch certain news stations or whatever because they're informative. That's great, but it's also the drama people tend to gravitate towards. But I don't think that's what makes or breaks an open source community. I'm trying to think of a of a strong community that doesn't have 
uh, strong leadership. Of course, we have that statement, the BDFL, right? The benevolent, right. benevolent dictator for life, yeah. which some people think is absolutely necessary to the success of a project. And so we have people like DHH, like Guido Van Rossum and, and so on. There are other, I'm sure there are other projects that don't have a single leader, but they have to have strong leadership. Sometimes that's represented in a core group. You know, I think mm. of Node with the IO split and then the reforming and the foundation formed and that board. Adam, mm. I don't even know how it works anymore, but I know everything's voted <laughs> on and and it's group decision. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you have people who think you have to have a single leader and then you have other people that think it can work in a more democratic way. But I think the key is strong leadership, whether it's a single person or a group. And I think on that note too, Jared, is a, a nemesis, right? It kind of reminds me of, uh, of Zed Shaw, <laughs> right? Zed Shaw versus DHH in a, in a way. I think it was Zed Shaw, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Sure. Linux versus Microsoft. You know, right. having somebody who's against the leader is always is also a good thing. Curl versus WGET. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that okay. one's kind of Fascinating. Joke, okay. So let's talk about some of the different verticals of open source. There's... You know, you've got front-end projects like React and Elm and Vue.js. And then there's like back-end projects such as Hadoop. And then there's projects that are important for both back-end and front-end development. You know, there's Ruby on Rails, Node.js, Docker. Do you guys have any particular preference for which area that you focus on at the change log? Zero. Mm-mm. Zero preference. Zero preference. And we cover what's fresh and new and open source. And that's been our staple but I think it's grown more and more as we kind of said a little bit ago where it's more around people. So we, we like to highlight things that really are interesting, obviously, the right kind of people, the right kind of projects, the right kind of ideas, the right kind of influencers, not just simply around the right kind of area of open source that really matters. Like we're agnostic to open source. We think it's more of a, a movement, an, ide- an ideology. And that's, I think, helped us over the years because whenever you see certain camps flounder or certain camps become stale or become old or not cool anymore or whatever we've been able to keep our brand name so to speak untarnished by any sort of change in the equilibrium of open source because we're agnostic and we think that there's interesting things jared you can back me up on this but we see interesting things too as we interview so many different people that lead open source that are influenced by other languages like we just mm-hmm. talked to matt's and matt's was influenced by Pretty much everything, wasn't he, Jared? Like, he took all of his likes of yeah. small talk, of uh, Pascal, all these interesting languages, and said, let me create a Ruby that matters to me. Let me create a language that matters to me. And I think that's what you find in open source, is that you see that it doesn't really matter where you come from in terms of a paradigm. It, it's sort of like, what is driving technology forward and yeah. making software more useful? Yeah, I've always been a generalist myself. I think, you know, there's certain people who say specialize, be the Hadoop expert. And I think that's a completely legitimate career path or or way about going about your work. I've always found it more interesting to generalize and try to touch on as many things in software development as you can, because, you know, everything fits together, you know, whether as a house of cards or, you know, or as a beautiful, you know, mesh network, however you want to view that, but it all comes together. And so, you know, we're very much generalists. Uh, we go where there's interesting people and interesting technologies. And I think that our job in exposing new ideas and, and new things, if we were focused simply on front end or, or focused simply on the web, which honestly, if we do have a, a bent, it's towards web. But that's just more out of habit. Why has software development evolved in a way where people tend to think that they need to specialize in a specific vertical? Because I, like, I remember 
For example, I, I'm the same way as you guys. I think of myself as a generalist. I love touching on these different things. And I also don't really like this idea of, oh, you're a jack of all trades, you're a master of none. I see no reason why you can't, not, maybe not master all of these things, but get a really good understanding of all of these things if you really want to. But I see certain pressures from maybe corporations or from the certain assembly line mentality that certain schools teach that maybe drive us towards this path that say, oh, you need to be a spring expert and that's going to be your career for life, or you need to be a Rails expert, you need to be a Hadoop expert. And these, you know, perhaps software hasn't been around long enough for people to realize that these are kind of dogmas that we're getting shoehorned into, but, yeah. or maybe I'm, maybe I'm just on a soapbox. What do you guys think? <laughs> I mean, I would hop on your soapbox with you. <laughs> so if you are on a soapbox, just let me join you and, and say that now we don't want to get pigeonholed into a specific It's technology. a podium. <laughs> oh, yes. Let me now, join well, you now it's a podium. podium. It can't be a soapbox. That's too small. <laughs> Fair enough. So from this podium, let's just say that it's important to understand the full stack. It's important yeah. to see the big picture and not be a quote unquote Rails developer I know. You know, people used to say, are, are you a jQuery developer? Are you a React developer? No, I'm a software developer. Can I, do I know React? Sure, a little bit. I could stand to learn it better, but mm -hmm. I'm sure I could do that in a fashion that is productive as well. And so we need to be able to cross boundaries and we need to be able to move on because what's in today is out tomorrow. And even more so, that's becoming truer and truer. And so, yeah, you don't want to put yourself inside of a, a pigeonhole. Mm. Those are small. Those are small. So open source is important, and it's always going to be important. But there are an increasing number of paid software products that are closed source, but are incredibly useful, like, you know, AWS, or you, know, you think of all these software as a service products like Dropbox or Trello or Asana, CodeShip, maybe. And it's very different from the days of shelfware, wherein the software that you bought off the shelf was totally outdated and terrible the minute that you bought it. Like these days, it's not like, you know, the open source software is is just definitively better than the closed source software. Oftentimes, the closed source software is taking care of things that open source sort of by definition cannot take care of, like just very easy deployment or, or um, procurement or whatever. So, do you guys think that the world of closed source software, is it evolving in a way that makes it more appealing to you to like report on perhaps or to, to think about? Because like there are types of closed source software services that you could think like these are so useful to developers and it wouldn't make sense as an open source project like CodeShip, right? Wouldn't necessarily make sense as an open source project. So do you guys think about reporting on, on closed source software? I mean, it's interesting. There's always a commercial angle to it, and that's kind of where we find sponsors and partners where we still do help tell their story. But if they're going to reap any benefits from our promotional ability, so to speak, then we say, you know, we open those arms up, but we say, pay us, help us out, because we need to sustain ourselves. And, you know, open source is free and open source, and there's a community around it. And the way we've found to fund, so to speak, our ways, which is just one of the ways, not the only way. but uh, we find ourselves going out to those interesting closed sourced commercial gaining organizations and saying, Hey, if you want to, if you want to work with us, then you can, you can support open source through working with us. And then we can also promote your software and find unique ways to promote what you're doing. 
Okay, I see. So, so I guess it doesn't mean we won't report on it, but you know, right. the impetus of the changelog didn't start with closed source. It started with open source. Yeah. And so, for those reasons, it would it would seem like pulling the rug out from underneath anyone who followed us. That doesn't mean we can't add to, but I don't see the changelog itself, the podcast, ever changing from shying away from covering open source. Mm-hmm. Will we create a new show that uh, focuses a bit more on something like that? Potentially. But the change look proper as a podcast will will always remain open source focused. And I think mm. the I think open source is so pervasive amongst these new closed source you know software yeah. services or products that even a couple that you named, we could definitely go and interview people at Trello and talk about the open oh. source stuff that happens at Trello because they're uh, definitely involved in that. Or totally, AWS has an entire world of open source software built around it. You know, we've had Facebook on the show to talk about React and React Native, and we're trying to get Mm -hmm. them back on. We're scheduling with them to talk about just the general conversation of open source at Facebook because there's so much going on there, even though Facebook is a closed source platform. Right. So I think there's angles into it, but I think the open is always where we're going to focus. You know, in the past, it seems like the long-term arc of closed source software is that eventually developers who use it they get locked in and they might eventually resent the software so this was this happened with windows it happened mm-hmm. with oracle more recently kind of happening with aws and maybe potentially creating an opportunity for you know things like azure and google what do you guys think about these different models for building closed source software is there a way to to maybe take lessons from the open source world where you can build closed source software in a way that doesn't lead to developers resenting what you build? It's going to be impossible, I think. Yeah, I mean, things I mean, change too much. <laughs> and people like free stuff. I was just laughing the other day, and I'm not going to say the name of the company, but I was laughing. We were at my uh, my wife's company, and somebody held up something and laughed. Or they were like, hey, check out this spec book. And it was like literally a book. And it was a spec book of a particular area of their product. And I kind of scoffed and I feel bad now doing it, but I kind of scoffed because it's like this old waterfall way of doing things. And I think software, you sort of iterate through it. So you never really know where you're trying to go. You're trying to solve a problem. And, uh, you know, iterating through it, you eventually get to maybe a place where people don't exactly want you to be. And, you know, you're not always following the right section of the crowd to solve the problem. I think, you know, you end up in a way where you eventually offend someone and, that's how you have competition. I don't right. think uh, resenting, you know, software that you use is a domain, you know, specifically taken out by closed sourced proprietary <laughs> things. No, uh, there's plenty of people who feel entrapped by their open source projects That's as well, end up resenting them just as much. So I don't know if there's any lessons to learn from either side. No, mm-hmm. that's a very good point. So you know, I think Adam, you mentioned GitHub earlier, or, or Jared, maybe as kind of this inflective point on what enabled open source to really take off. Do you think we will see another point of inflection with Docker Hub? I don't know. I don't have enough experience with Docker Hub, but something I've heard recently was, who was it? Somebody was using something from there. No, it was actually, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's the it's the Hitler movie that they use in memes. <laughs> And oh yeah. Stop me if you if you've seen this one recently, but there was a new one around Docker and Docker Hub, and it was like this interesting thing around how the node was using a public Docker image on Docker Hub, and how that was like a no no because you never know what's in there, kind of stuff. And long story short, I just I mean I think that's certainly opening up the door to things like that, but 
I, I don't know. I don't have enough experience with it personally mm. to say yes or no. I think it's mm. interesting, though. Right. So maybe potential security vulnerabilities. You're saying, yeah, I, I should. Uh, well, I, I mean, if you're using a public image and you haven't investigated the code and you're just willy-nilly using it, then it could potentially do something really negative towards you. I don't know. Jared, do you have any experience with Docker Hub? No, I got zero, which is why I'm just kind of sitting quietly over here. I'm kind of a, do- <laughs> okay. I'm kind of a Docker Luddite, you know, whereas with Git, I, I embrace Git immediately. And yeah. like, I just I gave it a huge hug. And I know a lot of people, especially that were happy with Subversion, kind of didn't see it at first. And maybe I'm just setting, you know, now I'm becoming the, the Luddite and I'm just like Docker. And I'm like, I get sure. it. I understand what it does. I've talked to people about it. I've seen Docker files everywhere. And I just, it doesn't fit in my workflow yet. So I'm just like completely on the sidelines for that one. Yeah, likewise. I've I've entered Docker on the command line less than 10 times. So mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm totally Luddite imposter or whatever. <laughs> I was also in a, uh, not long ago, I was in a, a local meetup and it was, it was packed because it, it had the word Docker in the title for the talk. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this this uh, interesting box that solves a problem for a good majority of people in ops. But for the general developer day to day, they just there's interesting things that it does. But as you said, Jared, it just hasn't entered your workflow. And while right. it's interesting as a generalist, potentially to always keep your eyes on something like that. And because yeah. it is so interesting, it does some very unique things and enables some unique things that uh you want to keep your eye on it, but I find that uh, the more and more people I talk to, they just they pay attention to it, but they never actually use it day to day. It's sort of like in this particular area of ops that only is useful there, and and there it's really useful, you know. But yeah, and I think not for everybody. Again, also, because I don't collaborate too tightly in large teams, and so I have less of the pain of like setting somebody else up yeah. or having a project that has a Docker file. You can just you know, run it right away. So it depends on, yeah, like you said, if you're in the an ops team or you're in a large team that's collaborating and you have lots of different projects that each have their own specific dependencies and whatnot. I definitely see the value of Docker and a hub for Docker. I just don't have much insight beyond that. Oh, ask you a question, reverse question, Jeff. Why did you ask that question? Like, what were you expecting? What do you think so, about Docker yourself? Well, so, I mean, I've done a bunch of shows around container stuff recently, a lot of it around Kubernetes and Mm-hmm. Docker Swarm and Amazon's container service, Mesosphere. And mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to see exactly where we're going with this, but it's very clear that there is some serious investment and serious competition around who's going to build the de facto platform that you use to containerize your data center. So right now we just deploy... VMs mostly, or we just deploy like very straightforward containers that basically look like smaller VMs. But the vision for the future that it seems like these different companies like Amazon and Mesos and Google are trying to lay out is like, you're going to want to run your own data center effectively. You're going to want to have batch jobs and you're going to want to have long running jobs like Gmail. If I'm a consumer of a Google technology, I'm going to want to obviously access Gmail, which spins up a container somewhere. And I'm also going to want to have, and and Google's going to run batch jobs that are going to process data on me on a nightly basis. And Google wants to be able to manage this across a data center in a way that's really easy for them. And their thinking is, well, in the future, everybody's going to want to do this. Like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to have this amazing abstraction 
that allows you to really easily manage your batch jobs and really easily manage your like user session type jobs like Gmail or Facebook or whatever. And so everybody is realizing this. Well, if you consider everybody to be Mesos, Amazon, Google, etc. Mm-hmm. And so like that's the vision. And that's kind of why and I watch Docker out of the corner of my eye and I'm like, okay, I'm not dealing with this day to day because like I'm a full-time software podcaster, right? I'm like not writing code on a daily basis. So all I can do is is ask people who are, you know, dealing with the day-to-day, like, what is exciting about this project to you? And it's just, you know, this thing that just comes up over and over and over again about all these, and there's all these different applications for it. Obviously, we see it, you know, on a day-to-day basis, when you talk to people, it's mostly about like, yeah, I'm just using this to help my deployment, standardize my deployment. But the long-term vision for what it enables is so much bigger than that. So it's almost like this primitive that enables so much that we have no idea where it's going to take us, almost like the smartphone or like AWS coming out. That is the sense that I get about what this technology allows. But not having worked with it myself, you know, all I do is just talk to people about it. All I can really do is speculate and hypothesize and and ask Mm -hmm. people like, like you guys, so. <laughs> well, it certainly keeps getting more and more interesting, and it certainly yeah. keeps garnering more and more interest, and with that, money, right? Docker yeah, started open source, and they mm-hmm. they went from .cloud to Docker, which we covered way early. We haven't really covered Docker much since then, but it went from .cloud as a service to creating Docker, the, the open source technology, and now there's a company called Docker, and then, you know, obviously a lot more people there and moving this technology forward, so it keeps generating more and more interest. Okay, I want to talk to you guys about the changelog itself. And you know, some of these questions are it's somewhat in self-interest because you guys have been podcasting about software for so long. I'd really like to get feel for how you think about doing the podcast and talking to people about software. Because I think communications hmm. about software, the person-to-person communication aspect is something I could really learn a lot from you guys. I think the listeners could also learn a lot too because if you get better at communicating about software to people, then you can save so much time in the development process. So just talking in terms of the changelog, how technical do you guys try to get with a given episode of the changelog? How do you figure out the right balance between technicality and approachability? That's definitely a balance that we struggle to strike. I think some of it we just let happen naturally. We kind of let our own interest and technical ability or lack of ability to lead a conversation we do get together and talk about what you know what are specific things that we think are interesting about this person or this technology and we try to focus on pulling those things out how specifically technical to get you know sometimes we leave that to the guest we do tell our guests you know you're, you're talking to developers you're talking to technical people so feel free to get into the weeds if you think something is worth explaining at a technical depth and you can do it in audio and not have to draw a diagram or something, take us there and we'll go there with you as far as we can. Sometimes we have to dig them out of the weeds, you know, and bring it back up to a high level. But I don't know if there's necessarily a science behind it, Adam. What do you think? No, I think uh, the one thing you said, Jared, and I never really thought about it like that, but we face our imposter syndrome so no one else has to. And I think we kind of take that same, (laughs) you know, everyone has that Mm -hmm. self concern i guess that they don't belong or they don't know enough and if anybody should be hosting this show it should be jared and i because we know just enough to not know any at all and 
But we do. We, we get there. But uh, I think that uh, when it comes to a science, I don't think there's a real science to it. I think what I think is the beauty of what is now the change, because it's actually changed over, over its time. It's had different hosts working with me on it and stuff like that. But I think what the current version of it is, why I like this version the best, in my opinion, is that it starts with Jared and I's relationship. Like he and I know how to talk like anybody else would, but I think Jared and I have a good relationship. We understand one another. And so we don't compete on the show for mic time. We know that it's not about us and that it's really about what's interesting and what's important to focus on for that guest. And whether it's technical, whether it's community, whether it's influence, whether it's their background, Jared and I work really well together to figure out what is important in a very short amount of time. We don't spend a ton of time planning the show. Some shows a bit more than others, but most shows are usually done within maybe an hour, hour and a half of prep, if that. Hmm. And uh, we share a Google Doc. You know, we have a pretty easy process. But I think the it starts with Jared and I's ability to have a good conversation together and then pull a guest into that and not worry about making the show about us. It's It's really about... The guest, the science is pretty much that, in, in my opinion, for us, you know, for our show. So obviously there is some advantage to doing shows about topics that you're really not familiar with because you can assume that, the, you know, if you're doing reporting on kind of the cutting edge of software, you can assume that most of the listeners have about the same level of experience. Like they've read something on Hacker News or like even more likely they've seen a headline on Hacker News or maybe skimmed an article about a technology and they know literally nothing else. So in right. some sense it's it's good to begin a show from a beginner's mindset and and not have, you know, much knowledge about the technology or not having done some prep. I'd say the word to use there is outsider and more so than beginner because I don't think we ever feel like uh, we're beginners because we right. do have history and experience and that doesn't speak to beginner. I think it's more like an outsider or someone who's newer to something that doesn't exactly mean you're just beginning like with lack of knowledge is, is kind of what beginner usually tends to signify. It's more like, in my opinion, it's more like that, like an outsider coming in or someone who is a little less familiar with it. And almost like a childlike asking like, Hey, what does this do? And why does it work like that? Because that's what the general majority is usually thinking. And again, back to that imposter syndrome thing, they tend to not ask because they're like, I don't want to sound stupid. There's times, you know, Jared and I, we ask good but silly questions sometimes just because you can't help it. If you don't understand something or you don't get why something works the way it does, you ask and you get an answer hopefully from the person. And if they're an influencer, if they're a leader and they have good qualities like that, they're not going to like treat Jared and I like idiots. They're going to help us understand something and thereby the audience listening. There was this recent Stack Overflow survey that put the average experience level of software engineers at 6.5 years, which means because of that skew, there must be tons of newer developers. What do you think is the average level of experience for a listener of the changelog? Oh, man. Jeez, I don't even know. years? We haven't done the survey. Years or or however, whatever benchmark you want to use. I would say experienced in in my opinion i don't think but then again i'm always surprised because we get tweets jared from people that are that seem to be maybe newer to software development we even have people on like rockbot who hasn't been in long but she's got a good technology experience given her schooling background and what she's done with uh you know in javascript and node and robots and robotics and stuff like 
it's really an interesting, diverse crowd. I think what we tend to gravitate towards and what tend to listen to our show is is less around maybe the experience. I wouldn't say we attract new developers. Maybe maybe we do. I don't really know. I, I can't uh, really <laughs> identify my exact thought pattern because I think that we have yeah. a, a very diverse crowd. Some really, really technical and some that are really new. Yeah. I think we serve a pretty broad audience in that regard. People who interact with us. We don't do surveys or anything and there's no like age or experience analytics. So we don't have, you know, hard facts about any of this. It's all just who talks to us and, and who mm. we know listens and yeah, anywhere from beginners to very experienced. I think our show is approachable for people who are either outsiders or beginners to to specific things. And yet because we don't focus, yeah. we do talk about technical merits and value that software brings and, and struggles as the leader of a project or as a maintainer or, you know, those type of things, which I think are valuable for people of all experiences. So because we're approachable and yet we also do provide these kind of big picture value propositions and insights and inspiration, I think there's people kind of takeaways of, of all experience levels. Mm. I hope so. Yeah. So... One thing I think is interesting about software podcasting is that the changelog has been really successful. And I think one source of that success is that the idea of a high quality software podcast is, for many reasons, is kind of unlikely because so a lot of the podcasts I hear or that I subscribe to or listen to are somewhat similar. Like, so there's a lot of like entrepreneurship podcasts and you kind of see the same sort of like motivational people talking the same kind of entrepreneurial people who are building their personal brands and stuff. And a lot of that is, I think, because like, these are the people that they have to do, like kind of their job is to market themselves and their persona and their entrepreneurship and whatnot. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But software, on the other hand, like if someone understands software really well, most of the time, they're just going to spend all that time, like all their spare time is just going to go to writing code or building some kind of software project, architecting a software project. Generally speaking, they're not going to spend their time doing the types of stuff that you have to do if you're going to be a software podcast. You're like configuring WordPress or like figuring out your RSS feed or figuring out all the audio jankiness that we spent seven minutes doing before we got started, which is totally typical for a software podcaster. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know what question I'm driving at here, but given how interesting and how expansive the world of software engineering is, why aren't there more great software engineering podcasts? We ask ourselves that question every single day. <laughs> and yeah. we, we aim to solve that problem to a degree. But, you know, I think you said something that was successful for us is our focus on quality. And that's been our thread since the beginning, if you listen to the early days of the changelog to current days of the changelog, we've definitely gotten better. And it's kind of funny because I was literally going through a hard drive last night trying to organize old files. I like to, I like to archive stuff. And I was going through and I stumbled upon, Jared, I, this is going to be funny, it's, it's, I don't know what, but I stumbled on episode 10 of the changelog. And I don't know why, but I caught myself listening to some of it and thinking, this audio is horrible. Wow. <laughs> But the conversations were great. And so to zoom back out a little bit and not bore you with the details of that episode 10, which happened to include Chris Wanstroth, the one of the creators of GitHub, which is a great episode. Go back and listen to it, but don't judge us on audio quality. <laughs> but what was interesting is that we always focus on good quality, but it didn't mean that it had to be 
audibly quality. That was always the goal, but it was really focused on great content. And everyone says great content. I think that some of the podcasts you'd mentioned or styles of podcasts where you tend to have this typical interviewer, interviewee kind of situation, and it's sort of this linear fashion. And that's what the change was built upon, and we've gotten better at that over the years with interviewing somebody. But it's what you ask them and the things you focus on that really pull out the right kind of things. And you'd mentioned that we talk to people or software podcasts talk to people that don't tend to be you know, self-promotional. Jared, there's been at least a couple of times I can recall where we've talked to somebody like, this is the first time I've actually talked to somebody like this week. I've been focusing so much on writing code. And I think that's the beauty of it is because we talk to, we talk to people who are, that need to tell the world about what they're doing. Someone in particular I could think of is like Tim Caswell. I don't know how often he gets on a podcast, but when he does, it's great because the guy goes deep. He's always on the, he's not on it. He is the edge in terms yeah. of a lot of stuff he's working on. And I'm always always taken back by the things he's talking about. And so he's one good example of someone we've had on the show that's just like, get him on a podcast and have him just talk about what he's doing because that's going to be interesting. And that's, I think that's kind of the successful point that we've focused on. And we've sort of tried to push that button harder and harder as we, as we go along. Mm. So the podcast infrastructure for the web, in many ways, it's exactly the same as it was when podcasts were invented. Basically, you subscribe Linear? to the RS. Uh, I you mean... mean- no, no, I, so I mean like infrastructure, the infrastructure. Yeah. So like you subscribe to an RSS feed and then you just get MP3s. Right, right. Have you guys like, do you see any you know, signs on the wall that podcast usage and distribution is going to change meaningfully in the near future? Oh, Jared, you take that one, man. <laughs> or I could take In terms of how we distribute the audio or in terms of mean, how like, people consume it? In terms of the it. actual market. You know, I think over time, people have tried to have these like boil the ocean solutions right. where like whether you think of um, Stitcher or right. I don't know, basically any great ideas that will never change the they may influence. But I think um, there's such a stronghold from iTunes yeah. that it's like we're a, a small fish in a very, very, very big universe, not even ocean, because like it goes beyond the ocean. Strangely, strangely managed, walled garden, somewhat universe. And it's so the shame there is since we're talking specifically about that, I think that it's just a shame because there's so many things that Jared and I have personally talked about on ways to improve the overall thing, but everyone is locked into it. Like the idea of how podcasts are distributed right now, I don't think is going to change. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it'll change for five years at least. I mean, I think it's getting to the maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, Jared. Slap me in the face if I'm wrong, but I just don't see it changing because it's such a Goliath, and you know Apple is just so huge. They have such a stronghold on it. They have such a marketability towards the devices, the software, and then ultimately the platform that it all sits upon. No one hosts their podcast on iTunes, but it's all distributed through iTunes. And since they are the largest provider, they tend to dictate much like Google does with search. And so for that reason, if they don't change. It doesn't change. And so it begins with Apple, in my opinion. Like, I think it, if you're listening to the show and you're from Apple and you're involved in that area, come talk to us. We have ideas or just listen to the market or at least change because you haven't and you're breaking the system, even though you made it. Hmm. Hey, you guys should talk to the folks at Acast. I don't know if you if you have, but I had a very interesting conversation with somebody from Acast recently. They're kind of trying to be the Spotify of podcasts. You know, it's a bunch uh-huh. of ex- ex-Spotify people working on this podcast platform that's 
pretty ambitious, but pretty interesting. Maybe I'll put you in touch with them. Anyway, so, okay. You guys have mentioned the three C's of podcasting, which is content, consistency, and community. And I think that these three are definitely keys to building a successful podcast. Maybe they were all that you needed several years ago. But these days, there are so many podcasts, and it can be hard to break out and gain growth and popularity, even if you just have really good quality content, consistency, and some community. Is there anything else that you guys have done to encourage growth? Is there anything in particular, this is obviously like somewhat in self-interest, but anything you do Mm -hmm. to market the change log that works particularly well? Mm. Well, I think that uh, podcast (laughs) marketing is broken. I don't think it's, that's kind of where Jared and I begin with some of the problems we'd solve with podcasts and how they're distributed is is being able to promote them. Because we feel like the only way that we can see that people find us is when someone says, hey, on Twitter, they say, hey, you know, I'm interested in getting into podcasts. Which ones do you recommend? And we see our name pop up in a slew of other names. And uh, so that's, you know, on the marketing side of it. But in terms of a good show and getting a market for that show. I think it totally stands on those three C's. It begins and ends with content and ends with quality. And the community can't be dismissed from that because if not, you wouldn't have anybody listening to it. And you have to focus on quality. And I think quality is an expansive topic where it's not just the audio quality. It's also the quality of the content and the community around it. I think those things are exactly what you should focus on and focusing on anything else is a loss leader because if you don't have those three things then you don't have a podcast okay yeah, cool. unfortunately audio doesn't travel online no. like video does and like text does it just does not you never heard of a viral audio clip right I haven't no you know, serial serial podcast listen is the, to this is the one thing that you know traveled and that used, that actually spread mostly word of mouth and got some media coverage and stuff. And because it was mass market appeal, it actually moved beyond the bounds of most podcasts. And, and we're all grateful for Serial because it actually expanded the audience for podcasts quite a bit. I think it it gave an open eye to how serious of a medium it can be. And mm-hmm. I think people listen to Serial and, and whatnot in very unique places. You can take video there, but video requires your eyeballs, it requires a lot more attention, whereas a podcast you can sort of listen to if you wanted to, and you can sort of pay attention to if you wanted to. Okay, but was Serial actually that great, or do you think it was just in the right place at the right time? Like, it happened to be this podcast that was like I have to be good. honest here. I have literally not listened to Serial. I listened to like half of the first season, and I was like, eh. I didn't listen to any of it for a reason. I didn't want to be tainted. Uh. And the reason why I didn't want to be tainted <laughs> is because I'm sure that the style of production is is very interesting and very good and the way it was produced it obviously sounds great i didn't want to be influenced in a bad way where if anything i ever did would copy something like it Mm. so that's one though but i purposely stopped didn't want to listen to it because i feel like it's like the prettiest girl in the room and you don't want to look at her right i'm taken for one thing (laughs) but you don't want to look at that girl because it's like medusa you know it'll turn into stone or something like that i feel like Medusa uh, was really ugly, though. <laughs> Medusa was was really ugly, and she also had snakes like in her head, snakes like that. Yeah. But the point is, is if you looked at her, something bad would happen. So that's kind of how I feel about Cyril. It's like uh, Cyril's mm-hmm. not a woman. Cyril's gender agnostic, I'm sure. But the fact is, is like I just didn't listen to it because I didn't want to be tainted by it. And I think that those styles of shows are can be really interesting. And I think that if you apply that right. same kind of 
science in terms of how they designed the show, designed that podcast. If you took that same science and applied it to our world, well, things would get very interesting. Yeah, it's mm. very expensive to produce a podcast very. of that quality. I think I think Serial's right place, right time, but it was also a compelling story. And so I think at least America, but perhaps you know the global market, woke up to the fact that podcasting is a medium in which you can create compelling, high quality, highly produced yeah. content. Mm-hmm. Which, whereas previously it was viewed as like amateur you know, two guys in their basement talking about space aliens or whatever <laughs> that stigma is. Right. I think it legitimized the medium. Yes. Um, but the show itself was not. It was quite a risk because basically they were like, okay, we're basically going to do an audio book that is a season of a podcast and we're going to invest so much resources into it. And mm-hmm. there's, it was that sense of continuity. Like if you listen to our podcast, it's like there's no continuity from one episode to another other than like, oh, it's Jared and Adam again or, oh, it's right. Jeff again. And now he's reporting on something completely different and there's no continuity. Right. Well, I don't think so. I mean, I, th- I mean, I think, well, I don't disagree completely, but I've been <laughs> listening to audiobooks on Audible for years, like literally since like 2007, like as early as I can go back with Audible. Like I never got the free code because they came out after I started using it. That's how long I've been listening to audio programs. And there's a lot of money invested, especially now in audiobooks. Like I just listened to The Martian. I listened to The Revenant on audiobook and I haven't seen, I saw The Martian in theater and then listened to it on audiobook and I thought it was far more better as an audiobook and as a book in general. And then the same with The Revenant. I haven't watched The Revenant yet and I've listened to it. And that Hugh Glass story as an audiobook was highly produced, background, you know, music and different effects and stuff like that. And I think that's always been there. And you said, has it been the right place, right time for Ciro? I think maybe that was just the first one we paid attention to because I think the quality audio has always been there, but not so much for podcasts. The medium, right. Right, right. As the distribution means is what I was talking about. Right. You know, in terms of audio, though, like the audio book, that's what made me think about audio or audible. Right. But Jeff's point is that it was a risk for them to to release serial as a podcast as opposed to just an audio book on audible or is that what you're saying, Jeff? Or maybe we misread you. Maybe that's a side of it. I was just thinking like it was unconventional because the way that you yes. listen to serial totally. felt like an audio book to me. Well, yeah. I think that's a good thing to think about there is do something different. Yeah. Right? They did something different. They took a risk. Yes. And so in your case, when you said they invested a lot, yeah. it's a risk. So I say, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to add one more to the three C's, add risk in there. Take a risk. Do something different. <laughs> it's not a C, bro. Nah, it's not a C, but it's, you know, R or Take a D. crisp. Crisp yeah. or disc or whatever. Yeah. So, okay. I got a couple more questions I really want to ask you guys. Begin to wrap up. This is somewhat orthogonal to previous conversation, but... We've done all these shows about like coding boot camps and like online education and all these new ways that people are learning to code. Another thing that came out of that Stack Overflow survey is that I think most most developers, like more than 50% are self-taught. How important do you guys think that formal programming education is? Uh, not very for being a productive programmer, uh, but I think it's something that you should backfill as you go out into the workplace. And that you should always be educating. And I think going to traditional means of education is a decent way of backfilling. But no, I don't I don't believe formal education as we've seen it, you know, in America with a four year degree system is by any means required. We're seeing many, many people highly successful who are either self taught or the product of non traditional education. 
I guess something that, that brings it back home for you and adds to that, Jared, is I just thought of this literally on the second here. Traditional schooling reminds me of waterfall versus agile, whereas like, you know, yes. you know, like you go into college and you say, let me choose a degree and let me spend four years learning this thing. And hopefully there's a job <laughs> when I get there, you know, whereas yeah. with self-educated, you're sort of iterating everything I've ever done. And I'm self-educated. I have, I, I can say I've been taught by others, but I've gotten down this path by my own inertia you know it wasn't created by some sort of school or some sort of formal program and i've iterated through everything and where i began isn't where i'm at now but i got here because of where i started and so i think it's like waterfall versus agile in this case where traditional schooling is like four years degree hopefully the job's there whereas you kind of now begin with the you know the shiny object like oh i can do that or i can be in this unique place and here's a path to get there and here's another path to get there and you sort of leapfrog down this path and and eventually get to something that you know fulfills what you really want to do yeah okay i love that so what one more question are you guys up against time or are you okay with one more question i'm good one more question that's it (laughs) i'm just kidding (laughs) so one thing i find interesting when i think about change log and software engineering daily and and then the way I consume software media in general, like reporting on software, reporting on software engineering, it feels like there's some gap between the potential and where we actually stand. Like there's the fairly technical content that I consume that's like O'Reilly or maybe even Changelog or, or my own podcast, Software Engineering Daily, or you know, watching some video on YouTube that's like a conference talk that's highly technical. There's that, and then there's like other stuff that's more consumable, like Wired or Hacker News or just these things that are like much more readable, perhaps the stuff you see posted on Facebook and where it's like, you know, the news sort of bumping up against technology and like how the quote unquote real world is digesting and interacting with technology. And I feel like there is this gap between those two things where the software that we interact with on a day-to-day basis, the, the highly technical meat is becoming more and more impactful on the real world. And simultaneously, the real world is becoming increasingly reliant and insistent on consumers understanding how technology works. And I feel like there is this diff between those two things, this margin, and it's getting, I don't know, closer and closer together. And so... I guess I'm curious if you guys feel the same way and if you have any perspectives on what the future of software media and software consumption by your average like blue-collar worker, what is that going to look like? Wow. I would describe software developers as blue-collar because we're the ones doing the work, but I don't know. What do you think, Jared? Let me make sure I understand that question. So you want to know how we think software engineering-related media will be consumed by blue-collar non-software workers, or are you referring to, like, everyday coders? Consumed by everybody. By everybody. So, so like, today you look at, whatever, MSNBC. What's the financial news channel? Is it CNBC or MSNBC? CNBC, I think. So, mm-hmm. so CNBC. So it's, like, it is widely acceptable in the world to have a 24-hour news channel that's basically about money and business. And it's basically... Oh, the news in the world through the perspective of money and business. And that's what CNBC is. You'll still see stuff about like Donald Trump and Russia or whatever, but it's all through the lens of money and business. So why aren't we looking at the world through the lens of 
software. You know, like you're software engineering, and here is the world through that lens. Because to me, it seems like this super important lever that is being used to impact change on the world. But there is some inability for the average public person to kind of understand how those things are changing. I'm just curious, like, yeah. Or do you think there should be a 24-hour show about software engineering and how <laughs> it relates sure. to the real world? Is I'm not sure. I think the reason why there's a money channel is because everyone loves money, for one. <laughs> and it makes the world go around to a degree. Mm. Minus Software gravity, makes the world go around to a degree. That's, that's true. It's just point. Yeah, it does. It does. I don't know. I think... Um, I kind of look at it as like concentric circles. Like you have certain level of technical expertise, and that's going to be your smallest inner circle always. And then you're going to have people that come up, butt up and next to that circle, but they're not inside it. And they're going to have their ring of news or media outlets. And then you work your way out. And maybe there's a gap in those rings. But I think you can go from, you know, slash R slash programming or hacker news as maybe your inner circle. of Like these are the people who are, are even more so a GitHub issue thread where people are discussing a spec. And then you have, if that makes it to the outer circle, Maybe it makes it on Hacker News. And then if it makes it the next circle, maybe Tech Meme covers it. Maybe not. And so what I think is interesting is sometimes that news does leak out, like in the case of LeftPad, right? And the NPM gate, as they're calling it now, a few weeks back. Is that right? Yeah, NPM that, gate. that was reported on the, the Register, some other news, like just general news sites. And so there are things that make it outside of our little echo chamber. And regular p and and if you read those articles in fact we almost linked one up in changelog weekly but i just couldn't link it because it was so dumbed down um <laughs> i couldn't do it because i knew our audience would be like this is a terrible write-up of this but for its intended audience right it's kind of like the malt the walt mossberg version where he's a tech reviewer but he speaks to the common person you know and yeah. so his reviews are still very well written but they're written in a way that i would turn my nose up at because i understand the technical details of the of the device or whatever so I think that that works itself out naturally. Is there a gap in understanding? Absolutely. But as software engineers, if we're doing our job right, like there should be a gap. Like people shouldn't have to know about this breakdown and in the inter- internet infrastructure because, you know, somebody pulled all their, all their repos off of NPM or all their packages. So we're, if we're good at what we do, we can create a black box and regular Joe Schmo doesn't have to care at all. That's when we're bad at it that they end up finding out. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. That's I really like that explanation. Um, the way that software technical stuff propagates around the internet. Um, I think LeftPad Gate is a really good example. Jared and Adam, I really want to thank you guys for for coming on the show. I've been listening to ChangeLog for a long time and a huge Sweet. fan of the show. So, so yeah, thanks. Man, that's awesome. Thank you for listening. For how long? What's the first episode you listened to, or how far back oh, do you go? Oh God, I don't know. Probably something about Ruby. Because the first real internship I had was doing Ruby. And that was when I really started listening to software podcasts. But I'm not sure when the first Ruby show you guys did was. So it's, I don't know. Well, we started with Ruby. So that's that's the beginning pretty much. Well, I guess our first. All the way back. Our third show was actually on Go. So that's how far we went back. Uh, Right when Go was created, we had Rob Pike on like way, way early. I'm just curious because, you know. That's your sure. I've definitely like, you know, I'm one of those people who there's like a, maybe a topic I'll have to do. Like I'm doing a show on software engineering daily and I'll be like, well, you know, time to research this show or this topic as much as I can. And I'll go back and listen to the podcast about, 
about whatever that topic is. And oftentimes that leads me to one of your shows. So I, I'm a big greenfield consumer. So I consume the old green, or sorry, not, uh, mm, not yeah, ever, that's, evergreen. That's ever. by design. I mean, we, we do yeah. try to keep the show, we try not to be exactly timely, you know, in terms of like news. Yeah. You know, we're not a news show. Right. We try to be a bit more, you know, timeless with our content and the things we talk about. You know, it doesn't always happen. We obviously mention things that happen today and say today and things like that, but we try to keep it where it's like that. And but since you asked since we talked about the quality, I'm just kinda curious, since you're an old hat listener, have you noticed a change in quality, not so much just in the content, but also just the audio quality over the years? Definitely the audio definitely the audio quality has improved. And I think also your conversational style and your level of comfort has improved. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. I don't know. That Maybe that's just me projecting my own experience onto you guys. Cause I know that's been the case for me. Like the first shows I did, I was like so rigid and not really comfortable. And over time you develop an ability to actually have a conversation. You kind of get a sense of what the, the type of conversation that a listener is hoping to hear. And obviously you never get to that like best situation like i can't i literally cannot go back and listen to my to my old episodes because i just cringe Uh and myself Mm. that's how i feel yeah i was about to ask you that so yeah i feel the exact same way i want to go back to them uh, and actually i did this last night as a test just for fun and i go back and i grab them and i pull them into audition and i eq them better and i put uh, a noise gate on them and all those things and i listen to old version versus how i do it now and I can actually go back and improve how it sounded even back then. I can't improve how stupid I sound, but I can change how good it sounds. All right. So that's that's been a fun adventure for me. They really need an audio plugin that does that. There should be. It's called a human. <laughs> okay. Know. Well, uh, well, thanks, Jared and Adam. I, I appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having us, Jeff. It was fun. Okay. Cool. <laughs>